So, gentlemen, I know that we always start with a bit of levity here, and uh, it's a hard week uh, to do that. Uh, but I do think that sometimes one can find levity uh, in, in pointing out the absolute uh, idiocy of uh, very rich people. Uh, and in this case, <clears throat> he may not may no longer be a rich person. But I wonder if you have any thoughts on the words of Sam Bankman-Fried uh, regarding the idiocy of appreciating Shakespeare. Uh, he is quoted uh, from Michael Lewis's book uh, as uh, going on about about half the people born since 1600 have been uh, born in the past 100 years. But it gets much worse than that. When Shakespeare wrote, almost all Europeans were busy farming and very few people attended university. Very few people were even literate, probably as low as 10 million people. By contrast, there are now upwards of a billion literate people in the Western sphere. What are the odds the greatest writer would have been born in 1564? The Bayesian priors aren't very favorable. This was echoed by, uh, you know, favorite of this podcast, Richard Hanania, you know, uh, amateur skull measurer and uh, noted expert on uh, racial divides within the worlds of, of lovemaking. Uh, he he uh, said that essentially in his Substack, if he had the time and interest, uh, given uh, just about a year's worth of work, that he could produce a material much better than Shakespeare. And this is just an obvious logical truth uh, that everyone should acknowledge and that we're all being very fake about appreciating uh, the Bard. I don't know that you are experts when it comes to uh, you know English literature or uh, or to the work of one uh, William Shakespeare, Bill, as I call him. Uh, but I'm just curious as to your opinion on these ideas uh, from people who are obviously our intellectual betters uh, in every in every way. Uh, and certainly, you know, given uh, Sam Bankman Fried's work, you know, more philanthropic to the human race in, in lots of different ways. Yeah, Billy Shakes and I have, go way back, and <laughs> I I'm I'm a I'm a big fan, and uh, you know I was a you know uh, English and creative writing minor uh, for a while there, so so I guess I have that really low bar of uh, expertise. I don't know what I don't know. I've read I don't know a dozen call it a dozen uh, Shakespeare plays. Oh um, no, I'm so disappointed, Dan. I would have I would have pegged you as a as a as a, a completist complete, completionist. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> no, I have I have the big massive like medieval Bible sized complete works of Shakespeare, and I always say I'm going to go in and do some of the. That's a good question. Like, what's the most minor work of Shakespeare that you've read? And that's probably Coriolanus. I would say for me. Which is an awesome one, um, but Titus, anyway, anyway, maybe whatever. Titus, they, if you uh, that that just sort of appeals I, to men, but yes, I saw the Hopkins movie, very underrated movie, great, very great, underrated, great yes. But I don't know, I'm not I'm not a Shakespeare expert, but when when I saw that uh, those comments from Freed and I I did see them, I thought when he's like, "What are the odds?" I was like, "Yeah, what are the odds?" It's kind of incredible, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, what a world we live in, you know? What are the odds that the greatest writer in history was born in 1560? In England, well, it turns. I mean, I and I also go to. Um, there's a great quote from James Joyce. I'm going to butcher it, but somebody has Joyce, like you know, uh, Irish nationalist James Joyce, who the greatest writer in history was, and his his answer was something like, "I'd really love to say Dante, but I have to go with the Englishman." That's what he said, right? <laughs> and, and I think if if James Joyce can begrudgingly acknowledge Shakespeare, then then maybe. 
Bankman Freed and, and Hanania can. But I think, look, I think people know kind of what those two guys have in common, a certain kind of computer brain <laughs> Skynet, um, lack of human humanity, humanism, all of those things, appreciation for the humanities. I mean, um, it's kind of like I, when I when I saw Bankman Freed and his all, all his effective altruism stuff, I thought it was a certain strain of Voxism taken to the you know, and and millionth degree, right? A certain mm-hmm. kind of bloodless liberalism uh, or progressivism that lacks like all of the things that progressives and liberals have naturally that are commendable in their character, like mm-hmm. a like a deep human empathy and you know, and uh, you know, a, a a real inability to watch suffering and all that stuff, like good authentic like um uh commendable liberal sentiments but those guys have all the same politics or political instincts and none of the virtues that mm-hmm. uh render those instincts the, the, at least the heart, tolerable. the heart within does not bleed <laughs> yeah. it merely computes yep. john what are your thoughts uh i thought this was supposed to be levity and that was that was really heavy stuff um <laughs> um you know look i think that if if sbf had uh you know spent more time um you know with with uh shakespeare he might have understood things like irony like you know the fact that his uh you know uh, parents one a lawyer one a philosopher are ironically going to be in you know having legal issues because of ethical issues and legal issues um so you know I, I think there's probably you know something to to be learned there uh for him uh but you know I, you know uh, the the you know some future jury willing he'll have you know hopefully plenty of time to uh you know pull out uh you know hamlet or something like that from the prison library uh <laughs> when uh when when that day comes yeah i was standing in a bar as i occasionally do uh the other night and uh, there was a quiz going on uh, in the background um, and uh, a group of, of uh, lovely ladies uh, who were participating in said quiz uh, seemed to be rather stumped by the question uh, regarding uh, which <laughs> which uh, character uh, and uh, and monarch uh, was uh, give, uh, had used the phrase my horse, my horse, a kingdom, my kingdom for a horse. Uh, and I was yeah. happy to supply Richard the third to them. Uh, as uh, and uh, yeah, I thought I would have gone with Dumbledore. <laughs> In exchange uh, for a free drink uh, and 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 m- many smiles from uh, some young la- young happy ladies uh, for winning a quiz game. It, look, if if that's not demonstrating the worth of Shakespeare, uh, to, I I don't know what is, uh, especially to the likes of of Mister Hanani and Miss and Mister Bankman Fried. Uh, look, uh, appreciate uh, the bard. Uh, read, read him, and uh, and also, by the way, I just want to point out there is a significant overlap in terms of the weird and way too online uh, countercultural right uh, with the ideas of, and I can see the the book out of the corner of my eye on my bookshelf right now uh, of Joe Sobrin uh, and others who are uh, you know of the mind that that Shakespeare did not in fact uh write his own uh his own plays that you know it was the earl of oxford etc uh, because the idea that some uh you know sort of uh, lowly born person could never come up 
with uh, such amazing prose, which to me is is really an indictment of anyone who pretends to be a populist. So uh, that's that's the best I can do in terms of any kind of, of levity in a week that has just been absolutely terrible. But this is Thunderdome and we don't skip weeks. So we are going to continue to talk about the craziness uh, that is going on in terms of the elections of 2024. And obviously something has happened which has roiled uh, really, I think, the entire world situation, the conversation, and potentially uh, the uh, election here. But we'll talk about how much it you know, really has done that. And that is obviously um, the attacks uh, waged uh, from uh, the Gaza Strip on Israel and the response from Israel that we have seen uh, to this point, including, you know, the formation of essentially a unity government in order to respond to what has been just uh, completely unbelievably horrible uh, acts on the part of, uh, you know, the the Gaza terrorists who, uh, you know, essentially, you know, are getting what they wanted, which is that they uh, killed a lot of Jews. They uh, did so, uh, you know, on what is by measure the deadliest day for the Jewish people uh, in the world since the Holocaust uh, that uh, saw the the raping of women, kidnapping hostages, the killing of babies and uh, and just horrible, horrible acts on innocence. It was an attack waged uh, from multiple angles. Uh, they came in uh, via, uh, you know, hang gliders uh, from from the air. Um, they, uh, you know, crossed the, uh, you know, into uh, into Israel from, uh, you know, uh, overwhelming uh, the the walls, etc. They uh, went, you know, in terms of uh, the approach that they used with the Iron Dome, they launched enormous numbers of rockets designed to overwhelm the system. Uh, and, you know, Israel, frankly, was was caught unawares on this. Uh, now, we'll find out, I think, in the future how much they was actually known. There are warnings and there are signs always, you know, within the intel community. And sometimes those signs get ignored. Sometimes they also are set aside because people just can't fathom that something like this would actually take place, given the natural response of Israel supported by America. And it does very much seem like this is an attack that was waged uh, in, in large part because of, uh, and of the you know very real possibility of an accord being struck between Israel um, and Saudi Arabia, uh, something that was has been teased for a while. The Trump administration did their best to get it done, but wasn't quite there. It wasn't quite across the finish line. But there had been, you know, sounds and and indications from uh, the Saudi Crown Prince uh, and from others in the region that this was very close to happening. And so, with the combination of the release of six billion dollars of of additional funding uh, directed toward the Iranian regime that they can count on to to back uh you know to take care of not just their debt but also their their food and medicine issues in the future uh and the the possibility of something like this being struck with a Netanyahu led uh, government you had the incentive there uh, for this Hamas action to take place the issues of foreign policy do not as we know uh, normally decide uh, elections in America, but they have in recent past actually done so. I mean, it's not historically the number one thing that matters for people, but you know, within our own, you know, present state, we all know that John McCain would probably not have been 
the nominee of the 2008 Republicans, uh, if not for his support of the surge and and because of concerns uh, about foreign policy around the world. I, I'm curious as to both of your attitudes toward how much this roils the current state of the Republican primary, uh, how much is it is a risk for Joe Biden. And we can get into some of the ramifications for his administration uh, and uh, and for others as well. But, you know, th- this really does seem to me to be something that kind of uh, the, the unexpected thing that happens that takes over the conversation, at least for a period of time. I think in the short run, that's absolutely correct. And, you know, we'll see where things are, you know, this time, right, this time next year, we'll be in the the final push uh, to you know, elect a president. And we'll see if this is still something that, that's on the radar then, you know, uh, I'm skeptical. I mean, and I think it'd be, and I think it's unfortunate because I think what we saw is one of the, you know, with, I mean, it's even hard to, because they're just so different, but with the exception in our lifetimes, you know, I think 9-11 and what happened in Israel this weekend are probably two of the the worst things that have happened in, you know, sort of in the, the and just, world. And just to, just to interject when you, when you say that, and when you, when you, when you make that comparison, it is actually very well-founded just considering the level of population destruction and everything that, you know, comes from it. But it's almost as if 9-11 happened and we lived next door to Afghanistan you know, or yeah. Pakistan or, you know, pick it, you know, that kind of thing, but please continue. And, and even, even the horrors of nine 11 and they were, I mean, I think for people of our generation, just absolutely scarring and, you know, have impacted the way we look at the world permanently. The as awful as awful as those events were. I mean, the, 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 the gross immediacy of, of the way that, you know, Israelis were being butchered by terrorists um, in, in ways, you know, as a, as a dad that are just too horrific to even imagine, it just, it just beggars the imagination. And and you have to give, you know, President Biden, I think credit here for actually you know, calling evil by its name and yeah. not everybody in his party has done that. Um, so, you know, that, that said, it's going to be interesting to see how, how things unfold shortly. I think that you know President Trump has has not covered himself in glory uh, in the last. Yeah, I, I, hours. I do want to I do want to put a pin in that because I want to get to that next. But uh, but please, uh, you know, um, it's I mean it's the I, the response from from President Trump. I just want to say was if you haven't seen it, I encourage you to look it up uh, because I think that uh, it deserves to be seen um, and it is the opposite of what you would expect from a statesman or a former commander in chief. So I, I think that to, to me, and, and it's, it's hard to, to want to say who's up and who's down from this. So let, let's look at more in a terms of, you know, we're, we're going back into, you know, we keep having these sort of like mini holidays from history and then, you know, events happen, you know, nine 11 or, uh, you know, obviously what, what happened recently or, you know, Afghanistan pull out, things like that, that I think, you know, there, there is a salience around some of those things. You go back and look at you know, President Biden's approval ratings and right around, you know, he inverted and never really re- and didn't recover after the Afghanistan pull out. So I think that on things like this, and particularly given, um, you know, the, the long affinity and close relationship between the U.S. and Israel, what happened there is going to matter more and be more impactful than, you know, equally horrific things that would happen in, you know, Southeast Asia or Africa or, you know, 
you know, South or Latin America, or what have you. Um, I think that this is, I think this is an opportunity for the, you know, especially for people like Haley and DeSantis who have a perspective on these things and will present as grownups to make the case of this is still a dangerous world and it's not a reality show and that we need somebody that's capable of making decisions to keep Americans safe and that help, you know, help our allies and, you know, preserve a world order that, you know, for better or worse, you know, and I think there's plenty of, you know, there's ways that you can be critical of kind of the, the post-World War II world order, but, you know, all in, it worked out pretty well for the U.S. And it was a relative period of, you know, global peace, you know, sure, there's always going to be conflict, but by, by historical standards, I mean, it was a, it was a pretty peaceful, you know, uh, period. And are we going to plunge, is this, you know, the first, I think what happens next is really going to dictate. I mean, does this become a broader regional war? Uh, you know, is Iran? Um, are you able to link things to them? I think the the other thing right now is, you know, again, you think back to uh, the stories of you know the, during the Cuban Missile Crisis of you know President Kennedy being up you know for days at a time. You, you do, I think that. You know, it does call into question then, you know, the president's vitality and ability to, you know, if, if events escalate and if, you know, the United States is pulled more into this, um, you know, is he up to pulling? And, and look, I think there's a lot of people in their 30s and 40s that, you know, the 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 stresses and the, um, the, the demands of that job would be too much for is, you know, is he up to it? But, you know, again, I give him credits to, you know, he, he called evil by its name. And, you know, that's a, it's an important first step. Yeah. It, it's, it's hard for me to um, handicap what it does to the races. I have two kind of thoughts. I'll start with non-presidential and move to presidential because it might be a good pivot then to what you want to talk about with Trump. But on the, on the congressional side, I, I could see this being, and with the with the caveat that John made that it's you know it it, it it does feel dirty to talk about political handicapping of a mass scale tragedy like this but um the, at the congressional level I feel like it probably helps Republicans if if anything because of kind of general mommy party daddy party dynamics and um you know war footing versus peace footing dynamics um, that have that have defined the two parties for a couple of generations now. But additionally, um, you know, there has been this horrific but clarifying showing of all of the forces that emerged in 2020 and the summer of 2020, um, the the BLMs and the and the you know the the campus left um, and and the DSA. There's been this really morally clarifying and equally dis despicable showing from those groups that were largely either embraced or tolerated um, by suburban voters in America, and that um, you know who had who had legitimate feelings of um, of uh, empathy and and remorse and uh, wanting to do something about um, the sort of summer of 2020 events. And uh, I think the response of those groups to the 10-7 massacres, um, you know, 
maybe it's just an online phenomenon. You know, we, we're always talking about whether something is just just about Twitter or whether it'll have deeper penetration. But there have been some really surprising reverberations from that even, even already. Um, whether you want to talk about Richie Torres, the New York congressman, um, the other the other congressman whose name escapes me, who renounced his DSA affiliation and response. Uh, to yes, the, uh, the youngest one. Um, uh, I'll get his name in just a second. Go ahead. I think it's sure. Yeah, I forget what it is. But yeah, he's a Michigan you know, congressman. Yeah. And there have been some really surprising and, and heartening responses um, to that. So I, I actually Shree think Thanadar. Shree Thanadar. Yeah. yeah, thank you. I, I actually think there's a potential to move those white suburban voters who really were decisive against Republican interest the last three election cycles um, with the salience of some of that stuff. But, you know, a big part of it depends, again, on what happens next. Um, if, if, you know, if there are continuing consequences and, and escalations um, in terms of kinetic war, then that's going to be a whole different basket of issues. And then sort of pivoting to the presidential, you know, I agreed, good Biden speech. Biden's been good on this. Biden still has the kind of refle- reflexes of a of his, you know, Senate foreign relations days and, and where the kind of Clintonian uh, neo-lib um, liberal internationalist consensus was and all the stuff he thinks of himself as a diplomat and a foreign policy guy. And he's just sort of aping what the mainstream left, you know, dem- mainstream Democratic Party's position was on this stuff, which is good as far as it goes. But the irony there is that, you know, Biden is saying the right things. Trump obviously said typically horrific, narcissistic, self-centered, contentless, idiotic, you know, you know, things. Right. But then you look at their policies. Right. And this is true, um, you know, Mm -hmm. in so many issues. You've got the Biden Middle Eastern policy, which is very Clintonian, which is sort of the lob a couple of cruise missiles at the night janitor. Um, and give a speech about about unity and and you know you know hold a summit um, and give a lot of speeches and the the sort of Republican foreign policy sort of post George W Bush especially after it was kind of reined in from its most ambitious sort of first term George W can, Bush versus sorry, second term. Can I just interrupt real quick because I, I think you're I think you're being unfair to Clinton you know who was the first time somebody a president called Iran a state sponsor of terrorism. He's picked up, at least in the Middle East, I think the Obama, the Obama team for sure, uh, but sort of the Obama agenda on sure. Know, so no, the, but but the, look but there that's an that's an extension. The, the Clinton foreign policy was about when it came to force, right? Was about air power, right? He he had the very shrewd understanding that there was a major difference between boots on the ground and guided laser guided bombs and he sort of invented that playbook that obama was he sending pallets was he ever sending pallets of cash to iran though no certainly not i mean but look every i mean i mean reagan understood post post khomeini you know reagan and and bush the elder and all, all those guys are understood what iran was I agree? Obama's, you know, Iran policy is disastrous, and you're absolutely right that Biden just picked it up. I mean, the six, the six billion dollars, you know, the insult to our intelligence that that money isn't, you know, isn't fungible, all of that stuff. But that's sort of where where I was going with this. Whereas, you know, the Trump policy, as chaotic as it was, and I'm a guy who likes safe incrementalist moves on domestic and foreign policy. 
Um, so uh, some of that Trump stuff, you know, you know, uh, you know, whacking Soleimani and moving the embassy to Jerusalem, all, all that, all that stuff made me a little nervous. And yet, if you are to, you know, not second guess it, but first guess it and actually look at what happened after the fact and as a result of it was pretty darn successful. And, you know, Iran's exports cratered and the sanctions worked and they didn't do much about Soleimani except lob some rockets at U.S. bases in the region and, you know, and, and didn't do much damage. Um, and so you, you look at the, the words, you know, versus the actions and you get this real contrast. And I guess the, the point electorally is, I don't know how that shakes out. Biden sounds a lot better on the Middle East, but the Trump foreign policy in the Middle East, and it, it, I, sh I should also say, the like you said, Ben, you know, Trump, the administration, at least, you know, really Jared Kushner, right, really pushed hard for this normalization um, with Israel. But there was also a kind of the very chaos of, and I, I know a lot of smart people who've made this point, the very chaos of the Trump foreign policy and, and its unpredictability actually incentivized the Israelis and their Arab neighbors to work some of this stuff out because you could no longer predict the U.S. response and the U.S. support of the status quo ante. And there was a realization that the region was going to have to kind of advance itself and move out of these old paradigms by itself. And I think there's really something to that. Um, so anyway, all of this is a long-winded way of saying, you know, what matters more to voters insofar as foreign policy matters at all? Does it matter that you say the right things like Biden does, or does it matter that you, you know, executed policies that actually change the trajectory? Well, I just want to support uh, a little bit what John said about uh, sort of the, the the continuum in terms of the foreign policy leadership that we have right now, if you can call it quote unquote leadership. Um, Biden did give a good speech on this. Uh, there were a lot of Israelis, you know, expressing their their thanks for it. Um, I think it's a rarity in terms of his uh, his approach generally to foreign policy in terms of him sounding the right note. Um, but but let's look at the sort of post Clinton, uh, you know, foreign policy dynamic in Washington because it's been very consistent. I would argue uh, when it came to the treatment of the Iranians, you had the decision under George W. Bush. Uh, to give Iran a pass when it was killing Americans in Iraq. That's something that Ron DeSantis actually brought up on Morning Joe uh, just the other day. Uh, they were obviously huge funders and advisors, uh, you know, on, uh, you know, on that path, including, you know, they gave shape uh, charges to Shia guerrillas to, uh, you know, destroy American armor. There were, uh, you know, Iranian volunteers that were fighting there. They were, uh, there was that, uh, you know, a, a pretty horrific episode where, uh, the Iranians kidnapped an American officer who was uh, advising Iraqi police and then tortured and executed him. Uh, and as a matter of policy, the W leadership uh, just elected to do nothing in response. Their focus was on uh, Iraq. And I think that that created, you know, obviously a vacuum that helped Iran. Then you have the Obama record, which is obviously just, you know, a, a total appeasement of them uh, and one that has now been inherited by the Biden administration with the same people the same approaches uh, and the same attitude towards Iran. Uh, and, you know, the, the real exception was the Trump administration, uh, which adopted the you know novel approach of let's strangle their economy and let's kill their military leaders where we have the opportunity to do so. And it actually turned out to be pretty quiet 
And, you know, despite the fact that there was going to be all oh, fire and fury and risking nuclear war and all the, you know, hair on fire people that were on cable news all the time, you know, that's not something that happened. And I think that the toleration of the foreign policy blob toward uh, the Iranian regime, you know, really is something that, that we have to appreciate about what's going on here. But again, you know, our focus is, is, you know, sort of the, the political consequences here. Uh, and what I'm curious about from both of your perspectives is Donald Trump is obviously the leading candidate for the Republican nomination by a lot. Uh, he is, you know, whatever percentage likelihood you want to put on it, I would put about 80% likelihood that he's the nominee, uh, barring, you know, some some legal problems or some unexpected events. Uh, but I do think that given that, is there is something like this un, likely to have any effect on it one way or the other? Meaning the fact that he would go out and have basically the worst response of any leading political figure on the right to this event, you know, as bad in its own way as the progressive left is in terms of their response, you know, it's, it's like he's, it's, he's the rights AOC in terms of the, the way that he approaches this out of, you know, uh, or maybe it's, maybe it's something actually worse than that. Cause I think he's actually, you know, smart enough to know how his remarks will be received. Um, when he goes out there and expresses his vindictive attitude toward BB uh, in the in the immediate aftermath of of this event, you know, because BB gave Joe Biden a call to congratulate him on winning. By the way, uh, just a fact check on the former president: BB did not give uh, Biden an immediate call. In fact, it came rather late and was criticized at the time for coming rather late uh, because it came uh, well after Biden's victory speech, et cetera. Uh, when normally those types of things come pretty quickly from America's allies. Um, and uh, and then he you know, sort of said, well, he, he tried to claim credit for killing, uh, you know, Soleimani or whatever, uh, which is something that Donald Trump obviously did parachute it out of a plane and, and did with his own bare hands uh, without any help from anyone else. Uh, it's, it's just an absurd uh, series of comments. I'm sure it will be quickly forgotten because uh, he will give another absurd series of comments. Uh, the next day but my basic question is does his unseriousness on this on the single type of issue that actually animates an enormous number of otherwise not foreign policy engaged voters including christians across america who vote republican does that matter it should. i would say yeah i it it should but the you know the the question as ever is like is it enough to overcome all the other structural advantages that trump has i mean it, it, in the yes camp potentially it is a game changer you know number 2 and number 3 in the race the only two other people who have any kind of shot are people with significant foreign policy experience who have more traditional gop views on foreign policy each especially desantis is you know, certainly has some individual and unique wrinkles that also kind of tip a cap to some of the forces that animated the, Trump's rise to some of the kind of fatigue about nation building and fatigue about, you know, quote unquote, endless wars, forever wars. You know, there's some of that in DeSantis, but DeSantis is also a naval officer, a veteran. And Haley obviously, you know, has foreign policy background herself. And they both have more traditional Republican views. And if if that's the mood that the Republican base is in, it could matter. I don't think it'll matter enough to overcome Trump's tremendous lead because also 
don't forget that there are anti-Semites in both parties, right? There, there are uh, isolationists in both parties. And in the Republican Party, those those two factions tend to be big Donald Trump supporters. Um, and so, you know, to the extent that the sort of Israel neutral at best or anti-Israel slice of the Republican electorate um, is probably behind Trump anyway, which is kind of funny given Kushner's outsized role in, in shaping their foreign policy. Uh, but nevertheless, I, I think is the case. You know, if that's true, and if it's true that the kind of war fatigued, uh, bring them home, uh, let's worry about our border, you know, to the exclusion of all other borders crowd is a, is our outsized Trump voters, then this is not going to move them. And to the extent that they form a, a huge part of his whatever 50 or 60 point lead in a lot of the early states and nationally then it won't be enough um i do think it's going to get some more cameras pointed at those other two it's going to get some voters to take them more seriously as maybe as a second choice um and it's going to raise the salience of foreign policy and debates and things like that going forward but i don't know if it alone is enough to lower trump's odds i think it depends on and i know that we've We've talked a little bit about this offline in different places on this, but it depends. It's going to depend on some. If this does not force a Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis to prosecute the case against Donald Trump, not against Joe Biden, not against the other people on the stage, but against Donald Trump, then then nothing will. And they should just drop out. I mean, like, you know, it's because to to me i don't look at this just in isolation you know I, I think we there is a pattern of behavior that when it comes to you know us foreign policy and defense policy and national security uh the the welfare and well-being of our men and women in uniform the trump is careless at, at at best and you know dangerously reckless at worst we have the mar-a-lago documents we have his his comments that were, I think, just beyond the pale, um, not not only in, in what he said, but then also sort of, you know, potentially sort of pulling back the robe on, uh, you know, Israeli involvement in the Suleimani thing, because that's obviously not going to, you know, help tamp things down to, you know, like, hey, you know, Iran, like, you know, the Israelis almost like blew your guy up too, but, you know, because I'm the hero, they pulled out. Uh, you have the stories now in the press about, um, Trump potentially telling people at Mar-a-Lago about the capabilities of potentially classified capabilities of U.S. you know nuclear submarines. Um, this is not a the this, the world is is a increasingly dangerous place again, and Trump is not a serious person, you know, and um, and it's going to get people killed either here or overseas or God forbid all of those places, um, but. It, it's not going to be enough because, you know, we know we know what the debate's going to look like. Oh, Joe Biden was going to give six billion dollars and Barack Obama gave pallets of cash. Sure. And those things were both stupid. And, you know, the the Iran nuclear deal, the sort of like cash for like, hey, will you prinky promise that you're not going to build nuclear weapons is just still baffling to me. Um, but. And, and t- until somebody gets up on that stage and tries to, other than Chris Christie and tries to to make the debate a serious one and not not only serious about Trump's shortcomings, but why his shortcomings matter 
to to the American people, the people that don't read foreign policy magazine that, you know, aren't listening to podcasts from you know, former national security officials, those kind of things. They need to make a case of, of why it's it's relevant to them. And I think that, you know, to Ben's point, I, I think that there is a, a huge amount of sort of moral goodwill and energy around Israel and you know, sorts all sorts of communities in, in the United States. And if this isn't if this isn't salient, oh also by the way, when there are dead American bodies there, when there are Americans being held hostage. And you know the fact that Donald Trump couldn't focus on that, where he was too busy. I mean, truly, like this is this wasn't even like the um, the the he was going to the literal needing to be the bride, you know the you know the corpse at every funeral thing. That hey, let's not focus on these dead kids that were murdered by monsters. Let's focus back on me. Mm-hmm. And like Ron DeSantis, if you're listening, and you should be. Um, like this is your chance, man. Like this is this is the punch you need to land, because you know there's there's you know it's it's win or not for you in the party. You're not going to be the vice president. You know it's pretty clear the Trump team doesn't like you. But like make the make the morally clear stand in something where I think the vast majority of the American people are going to be on your side and make the case. Yeah, I mean, I, my my problem with this is that i don't know how much there is a lasting real effect to this that will you know ultimately lead to it being a major issue uh, going forward because i don't know uh you know whether this is an america at this point that isn't just too distracted by all that we have going on um you know the the there's a great piece in unheard by ayan hersi ali that made the case that you know, sort of the the real blame for uh, everything that happened, you know, regarding this, it you know really lies with a distracted West, you know, and we've had so many different shifts in leadership, you know, not just obviously the you know issues related to the speaker here in America, but also related to you know the uh, the shifts in leadership in in Britain, the shifts in leadership in Israel. And that basically all of these different shifts and, and upheaval had le- have led us to take the eye off the ball. Now, maybe that's a simplistic rendering of what's going on. But it does seem to me that that something like this, if it doesn't rouse the Republican electorate to take an election seriously and to sort of say, do we really want the same haphazard approach uh, as we had last time, uh, last time, just without Jared Kushner's presence in the room? You know, is that really what we want from this next president? Uh, or is it just going to be about vindictiveness and revenge and getting back at the people who you've been arguing with on Facebook? You know, do we actually care about the world and the challenges that we face? Because we are facing some real dang challenges right now, in case people hadn't noticed. And it's not just Ukraine and it's not just the situation in the Middle East, it's everywhere. Uh, and I think that, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of confidence at this point that we are ready to kind of take that leap toward new leadership that we really need to do. Um, more and more, I just feel like we're living in this echo of like the mid-70s. Uh, and uh, and it's just, you know, uh, kind of like, where where's, where's our leadership out of this hole? Uh, where's someone who's going to actually understand what's going on and lead us in a way that is 
uh, you know, focused and that actually has a real goal in mind because I, I just don't see that at this juncture. I don't see it uh, coming up and I, I don't hear it from the people who are trying to deliver it. Um, and I see, you know, an electorate that says, you know, Matt Gates is the only person who isn't a rhino. Uh, as uh, to quote Matt Gates, long live Speaker uh, Scalise. <laughs> that was his uh, his big quote this week. This week, um, and uh, you know everybody. I mean, I, it's funny. Uh, Laura Ingram tweeted out uh, something that was virtually identical to something that I had posted about. You know, at the end of the day, after all that, you know, is what the rebels really? What did the rebels really want to achieve? And I saw her just getting flamed, and it's like you're a rhino, you're a rhino, and Sean Hannity's a rhino, and all these people who work for Fox, and Ben Dominich is a rhino, and and, da, 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 and Chip Roy is a rhino, and, and it's just, it's a moment of such deep unseriousness, I'm not sure that it'll come around to, to uh, recognizing the gravity of what we're facing as a challenge. Yeah, I agree yeah, with all no. that. I've stunned you into silence. <laughs> I, 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 you know, sort of like Buckley, right? I'm just reflecting on the brilliance of what you just said. Um, <laughs> you know, but, no, but, I, but I have a I have a couple of thoughts. Sorry, I, it, it, I I will say the the irony of the kind of bring them home caucus and the retrenchment caucus and focus on our border caucus that came from really understandable place about the overextension created by Iraq and, and Afghanistan, which were, you know, in some sense, wars of, you know, wars of choice. I mean, you argue about Afghanistan and, and, and obviously less so, but, you know, th those came from, those came from understandable places, but the thinking there was that these foreign entanglements and this, you know, you know, the spending of American blood and treasure abroad was going to undermine the country and lead to, uh, our our downfall, and I think right now the position we're in is much closer to the opposite. You know, the, the the meme the last few weeks is how often do you think about the Roman Empire? Well, that's you know here's a perfect example to think about the Roman Empire, and to think about you know what were the factors both sort of domestically and in the near abroad that brought them down. And to your point, Ben, I think there are major major challenges in every region of the world, kind of existential level threats, especially when taken collectively, and there is this almost ridiculous focus on you know domestic and cultural and and celebrity and um really inconsequential political um issues squabbles um that are leading us to take our eye off the ball of these major challenges from without that are going to have a lot more to say about the fate of the u.s economy the fate of the american worker the fate of the american industrial base the fate of our influence abroad um the fate of security and the you know, future of violence all, all all over the world. So I think it's massive. And then the only other thing I'll say is, you know, the problem, the, the real wild card to me is, you know, you can't, I was saying this to you guys offline, but you can't neocon, to put it bluntly, your way out of this, because in 2001 and 2003, you had an American armed forces that despite post-Cold War drawdowns was still geared to fight two and a half, half wars, right? That was the idea. You could fight two major and one minor war. And you had um, the will, the political will to do it. Um, and you had unipolarity. You had America as the global hegemon with no near peers anywhere close, right? That is not the world of 2023. We do not have a two and a half war armed force. We do not have the domestic political will to do any of those things. Um, and we are not 
a global hegemon with no near peers. We have a near peer, and they're not uh, they're not a, a true peer yet, but they're very close, and they are led by somebody who is very interested in remaking the global order and in the downfall of the United States led you know secure you know the Pax Americana. So that is a much different environment. So it's not just a question of like could we do it if we you know should we do it. It's a question of could we do it even if we wanted to do it. And it's going I mean, there's some things that are better now. I mean, technology is better. And I also think, you know, we have a, we have a world-class intelligence, <laughs> despite what Michael Hayden might've said on Twitter, we have world-class intelligence apparatus. <laughs> now we have world-class um, special forces in a way that we didn't even in, on September 10th, you know, we, we've gotten much better at irregular warfare. We've gotten much better at operating, uh, you know, in, in hostile countries, um, getting in and getting out, you know, surgical kind of special forces work. So there are some things that are better, but it's going to take, it's going to take diplomacy. It's going to take special forces, it's going to take pallets of cash to our buddies instead of our enemies. It's going to take arming our, you know, like proxies. It's going to take all kinds of smart diplomacy to get out of this mess. And, you know, the real question, like you said, Ben, is whether we're even up for it. I, I think... I trying to struggle with sort of trying to pull together a bunch of threads. And I think really well said by Dan at some level. And and this is going to be a rare note of optimism for me. I think that, I think that the serious, that there is a reservoir of seriousness and of political will. The problem is that, that it exists outside of, of people that vote in presidential primaries or, you know, election primaries. Um, And all of the, all of the you know, look, I, pol- politicians are following where the voters are, where the votes I should say where the votes are in a primary. So you know, it, it's you know people like Gates are just following market incentives. Uh, you know, people like Trump are following market incentives, and I think it's it's up to you know it's up to voters to you know to cast ballots to reflect the hope for a better vision of the world look i think that the media certainly fuels a lot of this too where it's just you know kind of you know hate tv on on both sides um so it but in the short run it sure doesn't it doesn't look good but yeah there's there's serious problems in the world and we need to approach them seriously instead of Mm. you know even things like look the hunter biden thing is awful and uh you know or seems to be at least from what we've seen but you know, in, in the scope of like the problems facing the country or the world, you know, you'd, you'd hope you can walk and chew gum at the same time, though. It seems like sometimes we can't. Um, it, I think it really is about, uh, you know, trying to prioritize, focus on what really, really matters. Um, and, you know, I think we, we did said this before, but I mean, this goes back to my sort of like my like longstanding crusade for more federalism, because I think if we can have all these fights locally, then the national fights can be about these really big society level things or these global level things. And it's a better use of, of everybody's time. Um, but yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't look good in the short run. Mm-hmm. Let, uh, let me just wrap it up with this. You know, I think one thing that this should do um, on a very basic level is I think it should incentivize the, uh, the culling of the field. Um, you know, as much as we see sort of people who are still hanging on, you know, it's really clear after the last round of fundraising that the only two people with uh, significant resources uh, in order to really continue to run significant campaigns are DeSantis and Haley. Uh, 
you know, DeSantis brought in about 15 million. Haley brought in about 11 million. Uh, Donald Trump, you know, can can say whatever number he wants. It's I mean, it's 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 above 30. But, you know, keep in mind that a ton of that is earmarked for lawyers. Uh, and the fact is that, you know, they're really essentially equivalent in terms of the amount of money that they're going to be spending on their campaigns. I just think that the sooner that this gets down to basically a three person race, a four person race, you know, the better for the Republican Party uh, and the better that we can get to know what these people would actually do differently uh, when it comes to the issues that really matter. Uh, and, you know, honestly, I, I I think that that's something that needs to happen, you know, not just for the party, uh, but for the country, because I think that this is a very significant moment in terms of the foreign policy challenges that we face. And I, I said, I think I said maybe a year ago, maybe even uh, uh, on this podcast, so not with you two gentlemen, uh, that I thought that kind of the real uh, unpredictable element of the coming election was going to be foreign policy, uh, that I just felt like things uh, were going very badly, were trending in a bad direction. I was thinking, I believe I put it more in the context of China uh, and in the context of, you know, potential action on their part, if not toward Taiwan, than just, you know, more expansionist, uh, you know, attempts on their part. As being and still early days, still early days for that too, Ben. Yeah, yeah. Not, you know, knock on wood, literally. Um, but I think that I think that this could end up being an economy and security election. Uh, and you know, if you consider the border a security issue, which I think most Americans now do, um, not just an immigration debate, but a but an actual security issue, uh, then I think that it's really these are the dominant elements that we see going into it, and. Uh, you know, I, I heard from, I heard from a, a you know n more than one uh, Jewish friend of mine uh, who is uh, not of the conservative variety, uh, telling me this week that uh, there's no way that they can vote for for Democrats again, and you know that's right now, you know it's it's not to say that that stays, uh, but uh, you know the Jewish vote is not a significant vote, but it is significant in the sense that. The trend line there is one that I think is trending away from the Democratic Party, and they have a real problem on their hands in terms of dealing with the pro-Palestine progressive wing that they have allowed to fester and grow. Um, so anyway, uh, this has been Thunderdome for Dan, for John. Uh, I appreciate you all listening. Please go to thespectator.com, sign up for our newsletters, uh, sign up to uh, get the magazine. Uh, there's a great issue out right now with a uh, uh, cover stories by uh, Bridget Fetisi and Billy Morris. Uh, and we have uh, a really great uh, issue coming up the pike right now. Um, that's uh, that uh, you won't want to miss when it comes out next month. Uh, so please go and, and sign up. It's a, uh, it's a great uh, publication and I encourage you all to get it in, in real dead tree material and not just on the internet. Uh, and I'm Ben Dominich and, and this has been another edition of Thunderdome. We will be back next week to give you more guidance through the craziness of the 2024 election cycle.